Well, good morning. A warm welcome to all of you this morning. Um, I am subbing in for Andrew, and I'm so glad to get to be here. And as I was thinking about um, and praying about, well, Lord, what would you have me teach on? I felt led in this direction. Um, so, so I'll explain more about it. It sounds like a strange topic, but I think it'll make sense once we get started. But let's begin with prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and for the fact that you are the word made flesh. And we ask, Lord, that even now as we look into the tapestry of scripture and we look into your truth throughout so many generations and centuries, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us today um, where we are in our own needs, in our own longings, in our own um, confusion and failure. Lord, would you break through and bring us your mercy once again this morning. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, so I am going to be doing a small, small scriptural survey today, again, with this idea of placing our story and our context, not just um, today in the 21st century, but your story, maybe, um, my story, within the context of the tapestry of the scriptural story. And when we do this, the idea behind this is um, when we do this and when we read scripture from the big picture perspective and we see what God's doing and the pattern of the way in which he works, what this does is it helps us reflect on what God might be doing today in our lives and in our hearts right now based on the way he's worked in the past. So my, um, my title for today is Gospel Portraits, Literal and Spiritual Barrenness. And you might wonder and think, well, this is a class for women. Darn it, I better leave. No, this is a class for men and for women because this topic is not just about infertility. This is a question and a topic that is really about personal human failure. This is a question and a topic of the longing for life, the longing for restoration, the longing for forgiveness, the longing for meaning and purpose. And um, for me, do you know, I think only just now can I even talk about this um, because it feels so very personal. When I was um, about two and a half years ago, early 2014, I was invited to speak and do a, a breakout session at the Mockingbird Conference, which is such an honor, and I was so excited. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? And I, am I going to do something that I have a handle on that's not very personal, that I can just do and not think about too much? Or am I going to look into this topic that has very deep personal meaning for me? And um, for me, the topic was my singleness. I had just gotten out of a really bad relationship and I was spared from it, thank goodness. Um, but it was <laughs> devastating then at 35 to have still been single after so many years of trying and hoping and longing for the right person to come along. And if you married late in life or if you have a daughter or son that's going through a similar situation as that, you understand the longing and the sense of failure and the disappointment every time when something just doesn't work out. So for me, I chickened out. I didn't feel like I could go to Mockingbird and talk about something this personal. And it was probably, probably for the best. Um, for me, for a long time, I saw my long singleness as a kind of barrenness. And it was too painful to talk about publicly. It hurt too bad to even bring it up. And even in a context where I was reflecting on it scripturally and theologically, I still just couldn't do it. Um, on one level, um, this long singleness of mine was seen, I saw it, as a lack of achievement, a lack of success, 
in terms of human measurement. And you see now why this topic is not just a topic for women, but also for men. And so the question for men, maybe you haven't struggled as a single person, maybe you haven't struggled to have a child, but maybe this is about being passed over for a promotion or walking into a financial disaster. Maybe not just once, maybe you've walked into many financial disasters and you feel as though there's a stigma against you in the company. Or um, maybe it's something that you have a sense of shame about and a sense of failure over, something that you cannot even really talk about. I think it's the kind of thing, whatever it is, for you, it might be the kind of thing that can lead to feeling as though you're Hester Prynne in Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic work, The Scarlet Letter, as though you are walking around with a red letter on your chest showing exactly what your failure is, as though everyone in the world sees it and knows it and identifies you by it and, and considers it to be such a huge part of who you are. For, for you or for me, um, again, this might not be singleness or barrenness, but it might be something, I think one symptom for figuring out what is this thing for you. Um, it's not just that scarlet letter feeling, but it also might be um, the thing that everybody wants to give you advice about. <laughs> is there something, maybe if you're younger, it's your mother or your mother-in-law. Um, maybe as you get older, it's your children. Great, thanks a lot. Um, but what is that thing that you find you're constantly seeking advice about? or that others are constantly giving you advice about. It's something that is perceived to be overcomable in human terms. It's something that other people look at and say, well, have you tried this? What if you tried that? If you t take it from this angle, maybe you'll have a little more success in human terms. Well, this is something for the ancient Near East. And within the context of the Bible, um, children was something that was seen as being the measure of a woman's worth and the measure of a woman's identity. We think about this today, and certainly um, for us women, that is something that we can look at and say and feel proud of. And Well, how many children? What are your children up to? How are your children doing? How many children do you have? It's often a question um, that's asked. When I first got here, I remember meeting a woman in her 50s, and I just assumed, coming from the Northeast, Everyone's single up there, and then coming down here, everyone was married with children. And so I just assumed she was married, and I made the fatal faux pas of not looking at a ring finger, and I, I asked her about her children. She was very silent for a minute, and she said, oh, I was never able to have children, and I'm divorced. And I just thought, okay, I'm trying to make small talk. I'm going to move on and find something else to ask about. Even today, for us as women, the idea of children and the heritage of children is an identity um, aspect, an aspect of our identity that's crucial. In scripture, you see the reason why this was such an aspect of people's identity was because children was seen to be a great blessing from God. We see this in Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. A blessing for men and a blessing for women. And so when we hear early on in scripture that there is one woman who is first of all identified with her inability to conceive from the very beginning, we start to wonder, well, what's going on here? Sarah, 
um, who I'm calling the mother of all who believe, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Sarah, when she's first mentioned in Genesis 11.30, um, the writer of Genesis tells us now Sarah was barren. That's the first thing he says about her. Sarah was barren. She had no child. In the Middle East, this was not just about identity and a sense of worth. This was about real physical care. Um, children actually took care of their parents in their old age. Remember, there were no retirement homes and no real way to save money for the future. Children certainly inherited land, estate, and carried on a family name. But they also um, tended to the sick, the aging, the dying parents in particular. Um, if a woman was married and her husband died, she knew that her children would take care of her. Um, but for the woman who was a widow and childless, she had no one to take care of her. So there's this physical uh, benefit from having children. There's this, of course, this emotional benefit, as we saw with Psalm 127, this source of joy, um, just the joy of new life and a sign of divine favor. Um, and as we've seen with the things that we're tying it to for us today, um, barrenness and the lack of children for a woman as well as for a man, uh, we're tied to a sense of identity and worth psychologically. Um, we see this in, um, in Genesis when Rachel finally has a child, and not even through legitimate means, through her servant, Bilhah. Um, later on, we'll, I'll have a slide about that. She says, God has judged me and found me worthy, basically. <laughs> I did good somehow, and God is rewarding me with this child. There's this sense of identity and worth based on how many children a woman has. And then within the social context, because of all these other sources, the presence of children, of course, as we see today too, leads socially to more contacts, more friends, more reasons for social interaction. Um, and the absence of children then, especially in biblical times, brought social stigma and shame. Um, even though scripture does not see barrenness as being the result of an individual sin, rather the result of the fall, the re result of the fact that we live in a fallen and broken the world that is forever tainted by human sin and rebellion, um, the Lord does not see it as related to an individual sin. I did wrong and therefore I can't have children. But socially in the biblical times what we see is that other women or other men would say, wow, I wonder what happened in that family if they can't have any children. Um, so other people would accuse and think that there was some kind of spiritual stigma. Um, so contrary to the blessing and to the promise brought about through being fruitful and multiplying in Genesis 1, 20, 28, the absence was ch of children is seen in Scripture as being a broader consequence of the fall, a consequence of sin and rebellion against God, a sign that things are not the way they should be that all creation is under bondage, as St. Paul says in Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All creation is groaning until um, the, the end when Jesus returns. And so we see this groaning back before Jesus is even born. We see this groaning, and in the midst of this lack of Sarah and Abraham, God speaks a promise. God promises that Abraham will be a blessing, and all the nations will be blessed through him. God promises in Genesis 15 that Abraham would have countless offspring, 
um, and that his faith would be counted to him as righteousness. And then he goes on in Genesis 17, the Lord promises that Abraham's offspring would be countless, would be a multitude of nations that would include kings, and that Abraham and his offspring would have an everlasting covenant with God um, that would also involve land. But what we see in Genesis, we talk all the time about Abraham and Sarah, Abraham certainly, but also Sarah, having great faith. And yet, when we look at Genesis, if you were to read through these passages of Genesis, you'd see that there's a lot of human striving to obtain the promise. They don't realize yet, and God is going to show them, that when he promises something, he makes good on his promises, um, despite human faithfulness and human action. So in regard to the thing, the thing in your life, whatever it might be, this means that all the good advice in the world is not going to help. All the tactics in the world are not going to help. When I was single, it was, well, maybe you should change your hair. Or have you thought about seeing if your siblings know anybody to set you up with? Or have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Maybe you need to call this gentleman and be a little more proactive. There's always a lot of good advice. And what you see, or bad advice, what you see in Genesis is that Abraham and Sarah are taking a lot of bad advice on their own to try to come up with this child of promise. They don't understand the nature of promise itself, that it is a free gift of God's grace and that he will supernaturally give it to them. And so twice, it's kind of ironic and kind of scary, twice in Genesis 12 and then again in Genesis 20, um, Abraham and Sarah are in a place that's not their home and they go into this other kingdom and Abraham says to Sarah, just tell everyone you're my sister, which is a half-truth, really a lie, because they were half-brother and sister, but they were also married, which also is forbidden, but that comes later on. But he says, just tell everyone you're my sister because they'll kill me and take you as wife to the king because you are so beautiful. And so part of me wonders, is this also somehow the hope that, well, if they're both barren, then maybe, um, maybe God will have to work supernaturally, but maybe they're not both barren. Maybe one of them can have a child, even if the other one can't. Maybe Sarah can have a child, even if Abraham can't, and that's what God's mean. God, God means by the fact that he'll give them a child. So they try that. That was a bad idea. And bad things happen, but the Lord um, gets them out of it. Then also, um, in the reverse, they think, Sarah says, well, why don't I give to you my servant, Hagar, and you can have a child with her, and that will be the child of the promise. And Abraham, okay, sure, we'll try it. Abraham has a child with Hagar, Ishmael, and, um, and, the, and Abraham sees this as the fulfillment of the promise. But the Lord tells him very clearly, no, Ishmael is not the promised child. You have to wait and see. I'm going to do something even more amazing than what you were thinking. And so we see that both Abraham and, and Sarah and Hebrews and all throughout the New Testament are called um, people of faith, the father of all who believe, the mother indeed of all who believe, because God makes it very clear that the promise will not just come through Abraham, um, because it's not going to go through Abraham and Hagar. It's going to go through Abraham and Sarah, um, the father of many nations and the one whose name means princess. She is the mother of all who will believe and the mother of this great nation. And so eventually, um, they, they do actually have faith that God will do what he says he'll do. And we see this in Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, 
even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Part of that faith is putting trust in God that he who promises is capable and able of fulfilling his own promise. And so we see um, in Genesis 17, we won't read all of this, but in Genesis 17, um, the Lord says to Abraham, you're going to have a son, and Abraham laughs. Do you see that in verse 17? Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? What a funny thing. What are you talking about, God? And Sarah also laughs in Genesis 18 when the Lord says it again. Um, Sarah's listening outside the tent. And when the angel said, um, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son, what does Sarah do? But she laughs to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. Um, the, it, she was past the age of childbearing, and it was impossible, naturally, for her to have a child. Um, but she, and so she laughed, wondering, how is this going to happen? But then when God gives this miraculous birth, just a couple chapters later, their laughter, which was a mocking laughter, an incredulous laughter, is turned to the laughter of joy. And the child of promise is born when Abraham is well over 100 years old, when Sarah is about 90, no longer physically able to conceive. This is the God who raises the dead. This is the God who created all creation who's Lord over all creation, who's able to change the laws of nature to do what he wants for the sake of salvation and for the sake of his people. And so we see him in this first narrative of barrenness, breaking through and bringing life, um, despite human failure to believe, and then um, little bit by little bit trusting that God will do what he says he's going to do. Just going to pause there, take a breath. Any thoughts or questions that you might have about Sarah and Abraham and this idea of barrenness that we see so early on in Scripture? Yeah, please, Kristen. Yeah, yeah, it is a long time to wait, and there's something about waiting for the promise there. I would just say in our own life, um, the things that we think we ought to have or the things that make sense for us to have, even good things. Um, again, if you're a woman, maybe it's the child, but maybe it's something else. Um, it could be a promotion. It could be a financial windfall. It could be just finally being able to keep your head above water without having to tread water the whole time. Um, whatever it is, and you feel like, well, I've put in the work. I've done everything I was supposed to do. Why is the outcome not what I expect it to be or what it should be logically. Those are the things um, where we have to put our trust in the Lord. Those are the things that are ultimately in God's hands. And so continually striving, yes, we can strive, but if we strive to such a point where we believe we deserve it, where we're demanding of God instead of asking, um, then we're not ready to receive it. Then we're thinking that when we receive this thing, this good thing, it will be because of our own work and our own achievement. We'll be able to look back and say, well, I did this and this. I did it right. And look, this was the outcome. And I really think sometimes 
God waits intentionally. And I really felt this about my long singleness, that he was waiting intentionally. And I'll say more about that later, but um, towards the end of our class. But it's funny, I, um, I probably wouldn't have gone to seminary when I was 25 if I had found the right person to marry at that time in my life. And so in retrospect, looking back, God was actually gracious to me in that, in not giving me something good that I desired and longed for, um, and something that I felt like I deserved. <laughs> because 10 years later, I felt, I don't deserve this. I don't know when it's going to happen. Whatever you want, I've given up. <laughs> There's no hope for me now. Um, so there is that sense in which after beating our head against a wall, maybe for 10 years, or like Abraham, for 25 years, after trying everything, then are we ready to give up? Are we ready to put our trust in the Lord, the one person who can fulfill his promises to us? Thank you, Kristen. Anyone else? Yes, Libby. With, with Abraham or with? I think they did. I think they did. Absolutely, and I would totally agree with that. Uh, Libby asked, wasn't it just a question of surrender, that they finally surrendered? And I think that's true, but I think if we see, and this is how I began to see my own singleness, if you see surrendering as a thing that you must do, and then God will give you what you want, then you're making surrendering another law-based thing, another achievement-based thing, that then will be like a, an equation, if I balance this side of the equation, then God will do his part and balance this side of the equation, or a vending machine. If I put in my 65 cents, I will get out the regular Coca-Cola that I've put in my money for. Um, there's that sense of um, righteousness, even that sense, and we heard it in our gospel lesson today, of the one who says, I've done all this, I've done all this, and I'm not like that, thank you, Lord, which is not really a prayer, rather than the one who says, I deserve nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And we can't do that ourselves. That's when people, I love the phrase, just place it on the altar. Have you ever heard that in Christian speak? It's very well-meaning advice, but it's diabolical, I think. Just place the thing that you want on God's altar. And I thought, but I am so shackled to that thing that if I turn around, it's going to fall off the altar, always. It's always going to fall off the altar. There's no me placing it on the altar voluntarily because I am so bound to this desire of my will that I long for. Um, so looking forward, okay, so we see with, um, with Abraham and Sarah that there they are. The nation of Israel hasn't even been formed yet, um, but will be formed through Abraham and Sarah's miraculous offspring, through Isaac and his offspring, Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. It's interesting because we see in Genesis that also Rebekah and then Rachel and Leah both struggle, these other matriarchs of the faith, struggle with barrenness, and the Lord breaks through and, um, and gives them children, um, children that would become the nation of Israel. And so what I would say is that you see a pattern, both at the beginning of this birth of, a new, of, a, of the people of God, um, and then all throughout leading up to the birth of a new people of God, and we're going to go to that in just a minute, and then it becomes a pattern for us as Christians as we walk the Christian walk, as we live this life. Um, so once the people of God was established, after Abraham and Sarah, Rebecca and Isaac, Rachel and Leah and Jacob, and that's a 
story for another time. I'm going to scroll through all these slides I won't get to, but it is a really bad love-hate triangle. Um, there is love and fruitfulness, unloveliness for Leah and fruitfulness, and then barrenness, but being loved by her husband for Rachel, and it ends up in a terrible baby race that results in 12 patriarchs. Um, and yeah, see, you'll have to come back for that the episode another time. We see, though, later on in the history of the people of God, after they've been in slavery in Egypt, they've come out of Egypt, they've entered the promised land, they are established as a nation, as the people of God. But there is a problem that was always there, the problem of sin, but this problem is far greater than they ever previously understood. Um, the problem gets really bad. It gets worse before it gets better, and a deliverer is needed. We hear in the days just before Hannah's day, in Judges 21, 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A terrible day and age. Day and age that sounds a little too familiar to us, doesn't it? Um, and there is Hannah. Um, she was, there was, um, it was politically weak at that time. There, were, um, there was moral chaos that was characterized by brutality. Um, the Israelites were at an economic disadvantage, but lots of bad things were happening. Anybody looking at the people of Israel with worldly eyes would have said they have no future. And in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this terribleness, God brings a child of promise, a child who's born supernaturally, just like Isaac was born supernaturally, a child who's born as a deliverer for the people of Israel. And this child is, of course, Samuel, the son of Hannah. And if you go to um, 1 Samuel chapter 1, you see these beautiful, this beautiful story of Hannah, this lovely woman of prayer who went to the um, tabernacle to pray, to long for this thing she'd been longing for for so many years. She was barren and she had not conceived. And she was suffering in the midst of that. And she's praying, she's pouring out her heart to God, so much so that the priest in the tabernacle thinks she's drunk. She says, no, I'm not drunk, just desperate, basically. And she prays, and the priest says, may the Lord grant you your desires. Um, she goes home, and she finds out she conceived, and she has a child, miraculously. And she brings the child back um, so that the child, the little baby Samuel, would serve the Lord in the tabernacle of the Lord. And Samuel is a great gift. He was God's gift to Hannah and her husband, but also he was a gift to Israel itself. He foreshadows the gift that would come through the gift of um, a king, um, through the, the, um, the one that we call, as we sang today in um, hymn 616, Great David's Greater Son. Samuel paved the way for the kingship of David, anointing him king and pointing towards the king who would come, who would be a better king than David, the king of kings and lord of lords. And so the gift of Samuel to Hannah and the gift of Samuel to Israel foreshadows the gift of David to all people and the gift of um, the Lord Jesus to all people. Um, so the recipients of those gifts, are the, of that gift, the gift of the Messiah, Jesus, are the ones who are like Hannah, who are bereft, who are barren in their own strength. Um, and the giver of the gift is Yahweh, the Lord God, the one who can turn barrenness to birth, vexation to praise, isolation to worship. And so this leads us, leading up all these Old Testament stories of barrenness, and I've just touched lightly upon them, 
they lead up to the New Testament. So that when, um, when the people of Israel begin to hear about um, this thing that happened to Elizabeth and Zechariah, it sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? We're going to be reading these narratives again in a month as we get into Advent and prepare for Christmas. Um, this sounds familiar, that there's a couple who's righteous and faithful but have no child and have been longing for a child. They're advanced in years, too old to have a child on their own. And yet God promises supernaturally that they will have a child, that Elizabeth will bear his son. And when she does, when she conceives, she, um, she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach from among the people. This is a pointer for all the people of Israel that God is about to do something big. God is about to bring life from death, forgiveness from shame and condemnation, healing, renewal, salvation, even resurrection. And so when we get to Mary and the story of the virgin birth, I think that God here is um, not just doing what he's done in the past. It's as though he's superseding what he's already done. If you think it's impossible for this couple to have a child, well, check this out. It's as though he's elaborating with a flourish in preparation for the birth of his own son, one who is fully God and fully man. The virgin birth is a whole new kind of birth from barrenness. God is showing off demonstrating once more his lordship over all creation, his miraculous ability to remake the laws of nature for his own divine purposes. Here we see um, that nothing is impossible with God, um, not even um, that one who's never known a man could have a child. Here we see, too, that God is um, doing something with such a flourish. This barrenness of hers is overcome as a sign that the curse in this child will be reversed. He is the offspring that is foretold in Genesis, the offspring that will crush the heel of the serpent, Satan. And so we see that um, Mary and the event that happens with Mary there at the virgin birth is something that is such a powerful testimony, um, her own testimony of faith in God's will, despite great anxiety and uncertainty. She could have ended up suffering greatly um, had Joseph put her away, had she not been able to have even the coverage of marriage. And she probably was still derided by a lot of people. Oh, you know, Mary, that one. Oh, you know, the one who had a child out of wedlock. Um, and yet um, her ascent to God, her, her um, be it to me, uh, according to your will, is a sign of her great faith, her willingness to suffer, for the sake of God's salvation that he was bringing into the world through her son, Jesus. So we see there is a pattern here. There's a pattern leading up to the salvation that God brings through Jesus Christ. Um, that pattern that we see in Sarah, in Hannah, in the other matriarchs, that pattern then that's fulfilled in the virgin birth, in the fact that um, through breaking um, all of the laws of nature, through breaking through um, in a different way from um, the way that says we must achieve, we must, we must work towards achieving our own promise, we must try and strive in our own strength to try to overcome whatever it is 
to try to achieve for ourselves what we most desire. This pattern is the pattern of our own salvation, that God works contrary to human strength, that God works in the midst of human failure to bring about hope, restoration, and salvation. And so when we see this pattern, it's so palpably present there in the good news of Jesus Christ, um, that in him, uh, God has for us bridged the gap that was there, that caused by our sin. We cannot bridge it ourselves. We can't construct a way to God on our own. We cannot ascend to him to make good against our failures, to try to make up for what we haven't done or what we've done that was wrong. No, instead, God bridges the gap in the other direction. God is the one who comes to us. God is the one who works on our behalf in Jesus Christ um, through his death in particular to bring us forgiveness of our sins and then hope for the future. And so doesn't it make sense that God is showing this pattern? They are palpably present at the cross. He's showing it all the way throughout salvation history, throughout the Old Testament. And he shows it also um, to us in Paul's letters. Because this is a pattern not just for that moment when we first come to faith, but it's a pattern for us day by day, a pattern for hope now. Hope now, even as Christians, when we walk through our own personal failures. And we see this in Galatians 4. And I'm going to actually read all of this passage because this is where we get such a good theological um, understanding of what's going on with Sarah and what's going on with this human barrenness and this human failure. Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 4, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. While the son of the free woman, excuse me, I have a hard time breathing, <laughs> as you might know and imagine. The son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And Paul goes on. Now you brothers are like, like Isaac, our children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. No, brothers, we are not of the free woman. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Paul is writing to those in Galatia who had heard the gospel and then who had started to turn away from the gospel because new teachers, Jewish teachers, came in and said, well, in order for you to inherit the promises that were made to Abraham, you must first become sons and daughters of Abraham. You must first become Jewish before you can be a Christian. They were telling them they had to obey all the laws of Moses. 
and even to become circumcised in order to receive the promises of God that were made manifest in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, no way, don't do it. <laughs> you'll be submitting into yourself into slavery and into bondage. You'll, you'll be doing something so awful. You'll be negating this truth of God's grace that you first believed in. And so we see three stages to Paul's um, argument. First, the historical. He talks about these two sons that Abraham had, one of Hagar and one of Sarah, um, Ishmael versus Isaac. And he begins to get allegorical in verse 24. The two sons represent two religions, one of bondage and one of freedom. There are two mothers, two cities, two covenants, two mountains, and two kinds of people. And then he gets personal, and he applies it to us. He says, um, if we are Christians, we are sons and daughters of the free woman. We're sons and daughters of Sarah. We take after Isaac, um, being born of promise and not of human strength, being born by God's grace and not because of human striving. Um, and so this idea um, is an idea of grace all throughout grace at the beginning of our coming to faith in Jesus Christ and grace every day of our lives as we strive to follow him, as we strive to walk through the disappointments and failures, some that are definitely caused by our own sin and some that are inexplicable but that we walk through anyway. Um, and so this idea is um, the idea at the basis of our faith. And I love this, um, this quote. I've got two quotes. Let me see if I can do. First, we'll look at John Stott, and then I'll real quick look at Bono, because, you know, that's the order to go in. The, rel <laughs> the religion of Ishmael is a religion of nature, what man can do by himself without any special intervention of God. But the religion of Isaac is a religion of grace, of what God has done and does, a religion of divine initiative and divine intervention. For Isaac was born supernaturally through a divine promise. And this is what Christianity is, not natural religion, but supernatural. Not what we do, but what he has done for us. Um, and now for Bono. You see, at, all, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. Balance the equation, like I said. Put into the vending machine and get out what you asked for. And yet, along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that as you sow, so you will reap stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your action, which in my case, and in the case I will add of each one of us, is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Um, so this idea of barrenness and God's miraculous fruitfulness is an idea that's rooted and grounded on God's grace. We see the pattern all throughout Scripture from the beginning um, through to the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and then at his death, um, the grace that pours forth from us, even as the water and the blood flowed from his side, and then also for us day by day as we walk along and wonder, Lord, how long? When will you fulfill what I'm longing for in my life? So let's pray, and if you want to stay after, you can ask me some questions. 
Lord Jesus, we turn to you right now. We just lift up all the things that um, might be our thing, the thing that we think of with a scarlet A written on our forehead or the thing that everybody wants to give us advice about but we'd rather not hear about. Or sometimes we think maybe if I take the advice, it'll go well. Lord, we turn them over to you and we ask that you would give us grace to walk in the midst of not knowing, in the midst of failure, in the midst of our own barrenness and lack of human strength. Lord, would you be the one to fulfill your promises to us? Would you be the one to bring us good things in the right time and in your way? Lord, would you be the one in the meantime to give us the grace to trust in you for the future? And so we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.